You are listening to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. This is third and final part of the series on pediatrics. Joining us in this episode, we have pediatric emergency medicine specialists, Dr. Kurf Tan and Dr. Carl Pobre. The third and final paper for this episode will be presented by Shreyas. It's titled Emergency Mental Health Presentations in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder and Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It was published in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health in 2020 by Burke et al., a group of doctors from Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. It's great to have local content here on our podcast. I think we've touched a couple of times in some of our old episodes about us trying to obtain research that quantifies problems that we know exist, but perhaps don't have the data to prove. So Burke et al. in Melbourne have essentially done that with this paper. I think we're all aware that children with ADHD and with autism spectrum disorder tend to suffer some structural consequences when they present to emergency departments. This is a study that attempts to actually put numbers to that and assess the magnitude of that impact. So this is a retrospective cross-sectional study that aim to describe the characteristics and management of patients with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, or both, who presented to the ED with a mental health complaint. So they collected data on all emergency mental health presentations in children between the ages of 7 to 17 to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne between 1st of January 2018 and the 31st of December 2018. They found the presentations by identifying ICD codes for mental health diagnoses, as well as other codes that are potentially associated with mental health presentations. So for example, wrist lacerations, foreign bodies, that sort of thing. Each of these records was then reviewed by an assessor to confirm that the presentations were in fact mental health related. And the records were then analyzed by trained data extractors to provide us with the results. So in terms of the results, The Children's Hospital had 85,347 ED presentations in 2018. Out of those, 25,095 presentations were in children of that 7 to 17 age group. Just goes to see how many toddlers we see in children's hospitals. Out of those 25,000, a further 1,690 presentations were mental health related. Now, those were divided in this paper into 374 presentations that were related to a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or ADHD and 1,316 patients with mental health presentations that were not related to those, which comprised 1,071 individual patients when accounting for representations. Among the actual population of autism and ADHD patients, There was 217 autism spectrum disorder presentations for 115 individual patients. There was 66 ADHD presentations for 48 individual patients. And there was 91 presentations for 48 individual children who had both diagnoses. The children with both autism spectrum disorder and ADHD were more likely to be male. And they were also more likely to have received psychiatric care in the community prior to the presentation. There were higher risk of requiring ambulance or police transport to hospital with a relative risk of 1.5. The children with ADHD with or without autism spectrum disorder had a higher risk of being brought to hospital under section. So for our international listeners, 
Under section essentially means that the child was brought to the hospital involuntarily in an attempt to either protect them from themselves or protect other people. Children with autism spectrum disorder presented to the hospital with higher acuity. Now, the most common presentation for the ADHD and autism cohorts was acute severe behavioral disturbance, and that was at 38% compared with 11% in the overall mental health cohort. Issues related to self-poisoning were extremely common in the subgroup of patients who had both diagnoses, and suicidal ideation comprised 35% of the mental health presentations of children with these diagnoses, either or both. In terms of management, I think this is where I think the crux of this paper really hits home. The patients with autism spectrum disorder had a relative risk of 2.3, in other words, were twice as likely to have an acute crisis team response activated. The relative risk of physical restraint in those patients was 2.8. The relative risk of seclusion for these patients was 3.3. So in other words, they were three times as likely to be managed with seclusion. The relative risk of them requiring medication for their behavior, in other words, a chemical restraint was 2.8. The ADHD group had also an increased risk of acute crisis team response with a relative risk of 2.2, but did not have an increased risk of restraint or seclusion. So I guess in summary, this just provides some numbers for us to reflect on essentially detailing the structural traumas that some of these children with these disorders sort of face when they present to emergency departments. It was quite upsetting for me to see the extreme risk of physical restraint that children with autism tend to face when they're coming to the emergency department. And I have to say that ultimately, this is not down to individual clinicians, because I think we can all appreciate just how challenging some of these presentations can be and how hard it is to de-escalate a child that doesn't quite understand what is going on and who you are and what you're trying to achieve when you're interacting with them. But ultimately, this gives us numbers to prove that we need to be better. And it gives us numbers to start as a data point for us to look at achieving systemic solutions. Thank you so much for that great summary of the paper, Shreyas. Why do you think children with autism spectrum disorder or ASD and ADHD have increased morbidity and poorer outcomes? You know, I'm certainly no expert compared to Kerfel Carl, and I'm going to defer to them on this. But from my limited pediatric experience, I think certainly the children with autism have difficulty in interpreting both social cues and behavioral cues and environmental cues, and often don't really understand exactly what's going on when they are coming to the emergency department. They may or may not be aware that they're sick. They will be in a situation where they're distressed because of that underlying illness. But also they have an, a significant sensitivity to you know, external stimuli and to environmental factors that essentially make coming to an emergency department a nightmare scenario for them. And so if you can imagine that you're a person who doesn't like too much noise, doesn't like too much light, likes familiarity, likes a routine, then coming to a chaotic, noisy, loud emergency department with strangers all around you poking and prodding must be horrific. Similarly, children with ADHD, at least my limited knowledge, have difficulties in processing their emotions and difficulty in regulating those emotions. And I think in a situation of acute stress, they're less likely to be able to control their responses to that situation. And so I think require a sensitive approach. 
unfortunately, we're in a significantly time pressured environment and, you know, a significantly chaotic environment. Again, it's probably the perfect storm of a situation that is going to lead these patients to escalate. I agree with a lot of your points. I'm going to put on my pediatrician hat on for the meantime. I've dealt with a lot of kids and families with autism and intellectual disability and also ADHD, working with them in community centers and disability clinics. ED, by far, according to parents and parents, are probably the worst place for them to come. And they usually come to the emergency department because they're at breaking point. That's the last thing that they sort of help that they can provide. So that's sort of the context of when these kids sort of come in. And I'm not surprised that all of these kids are so escalated that they need chemical sedation, restraints and all. They are a vulnerable group of people. Like you said, Shreyas, they just process the world a lot differently to us. Certain sounds, textures, noises can trigger them. They like their routines. And ED, like you said, is complex, dynamic, chaotic, waiting in a waiting room with a lot of kids crying, things buzzing and beeping. These can set or escalate these kids. So ED is probably one of the most challenging places for these kids to be. And it's the last resort that the parents seek when they're escalating within the community. So there's a little bit of context there. We do see probably the point to end of things because I see my pediatrician colleagues and GPs and psychologists and all these allied healthcare workers sort of managing children with intellectual disability and ASD in the community very well. So we're seeing quite the pointy end of things just to give context to what we're seeing in, in our emergency department. My thoughts were looking at the data is actually very interesting for me. One, as you can see, there's actually quite a significant number of children actually needing restraint in this scenario. I was trying to do the calculations here. It looks like about 3% of them actually have physical restraint and actually 2.6% of them receive medications and actually up to even 1.2% needed intramuscular injections, which is really at the end of the pointy end, really. That's where we actually have to sedate the child. Very, very uncommon scenario. But again, at the tertiary center, we do see a bit more than other centers. Also, literally right now, I'm trying to help guide uh, Western Sydney local health district in terms of doing an older set just for pediatrics, co Black as well. For those unfamiliar with Cold Black, it's about getting help in a crisis situation where you need to help control a patient, adult pediatric in terms of the behavior, whether mechanical versus chemical sedation and restraint as well. What was interesting also from the data is that 20 patients actually, meaning 1.5% of the population, were actually asked to go back to the ED. It's just a little bit surprising in that somehow some of them actually asked to come back to the ED, which is never ideal for this uh, population, definitely. Interestingly, going a little bit off tangent, somewhere where we have the luxury of resources at the tertiary center, we do have actually very specialized services to look after children with ADHD or ASD, specifically ASD in terms of procedures. So we do have a, an initiative that actually has special interest where you actually have a almost like a red carpet service in the sense of a very tailored approach to how they enter the hospital, how they actually get to theaters, how they actually have a completely tailored approach to try to um, give them a very calming environment to get them to a procedure and sedating them appropriately afterwards as well. So there are actually ways that we can go about doing this, trying to look after them. One, like what Carl said, is about awareness of what these children need. Two is about actually trying to come up with resources, which can be quite already stretched to try to actually help with these children. And three, basically also trying to look at 
how after crisis has happened, how can we actually prevent this from happening again? Because like Carl said, this is the last place the children and the parents want. And everyone in the community is trying to put in effort to try to actually prevent this from happening. But when enough is enough, that's where the police comes in and when the patient is sectioned or scheduled and have to be taken in, restrained. And it's always a very disheartening site. And then we actually have to manage the challenging situation as clinicians in the ED as well. And from there, actually giving them an appropriate so-called circuit breaker therapy in ED, trying to actually de-escalate them, whether it's just giving them a sleep with sedation and hopefully they reset. Versus sometimes after they wake up, we're actually back to square one again, escalating behaviors. What's the disposition in that sense can be very, very challenging. Again, quite a lot of these children were trying to avoid admission at all costs. Very rarely, maybe the only way we can actually de-escalate the situation as well. What is your general approach to managing a child with severe behavioral disturbance in the ED? I mean, are there any particular legal or ethical issues that we need to consider when restraining a pediatric patient? I'm working with the child development unit at the moment. I'm looking at ways as our ED in Westmead children can improve you know, our care for these children. And we've been working with families as well. So we've got a lot of insight from families of what good things that we do and some sort of things that we can improve. I think even before the severe behavioral disturbances, there's a lot of things that we can do. First is to have knowledge of what autism spectrum disorder is, what ADHD is, what intellectual disability is, learning what the perspective of the child is, what is the perspective of the family. Once you have an understanding, you've got empathy for that patient, your approach is going to be different already. So certain things we can do, and we've been doing some discussions, that things in triage, you know, flagging these patients early, asking the parents, what are their triggers? What makes them happy? This could facilitate moving them into a more quieter room or getting them seen by a doctor earlier or knowing in the back of your head, if things escalate, then we'll need to move quickly. So I think there's some important points at the very beginning when you encounter the child at the at the front of the emergency that you can do to cut the sort of the rose by the bud, prevent it from escalating further. Pediatricians will say there's a point, there's a threshold where whatever you can do to de-escalate them, whether it's non-pharmacological things, gets to a point where you can't de-escalate further. And that's when you've reached the pointy end of things where you need to think about chemical sedation, physical restraints. There is a pathway within our emergency department policy about what we use for chemical sedation for these children who are becoming a threat to people, property, and to themselves. But just to point out, before you even think about it, think about the basics. Think about the patients. Think about their biopsychosocial again. Think about their background. What can you do at the very beginning to prevent things from escalating? And again, going back to more details about the medication use and sedation and how you actually go about doing that. One of the good resources at a national level now is part of the RCH guidelines or the Royal Children's Hospital guidelines where they've got pediatric improvement collaborative approval, meaning it's actually approved by the multiple experts at the different states in Australia. And actually got a very good guideline of what oral sedation to use and what intramuscular sedation to use if non-pharmacological de-escalation is actually not working. One thing that's useful here that may be in other hospitals that you can utilize is the play therapist. They're amazing. They've got all the tools and tricks in the bag. So they've been very good in terms of facilitating procedures, particularly with children with autism or intellectual disability. Identifying them early is good. Not all kids with ASD and intellectual disability will escalate to the point where you'll need to do some extreme sort of restraints with chemical or or physicals. But identifying them early and getting resources early I think is an important principle. Thanks for that. Kerf, what you described in terms of your anesthetic colleagues was absolutely brilliant. 
And certainly there is evolving evidence, but already good evidence that sensory modulating tools are useful for patients when it comes to mental health presentations. And I'm certain that that would be particularly the case for children with autism and ADHD. I think that this patient needs to be in and out of the department. Like much though, we try and ultimately, you know, most of the time do things by, you know, the order of who's waiting or by the order of how sick people are. I think this is just one of those cases where it needs to be prioritized and someone senior who has enough experience, who knows how to interact with children and who has the medical knowledge to get this done quickly needs to just get involved early because we want to avoid secondary trauma to those children as much as possible. When dealing with children that have autism, even when they're not coming with an acute behavioral disturbance, sometimes it can be difficult to facilitate further investigations for what you may need. So say they've come in with a, like a physical symptom and they may need further investigation. I've literally had an experience where the father knew that his son would not be able to have bloods taken and ultimately ended up discharging against medical advice, which for me was one of the only times that ever happened while I was at the kids' hospital and was something that ultimately needed a lot of discussion with the dad to make sure that we very carefully, safely netted this child. And I think the conclusion that I came to after dealing with this event was that the parents do know the children best. If you appropriately safety net, they will be fine. They will know when to come back. And sometimes even if you really want certain investigations done, it can be done at a later time when it may be better suited for the child, I suppose. I like that, Maurice, getting the parents involved. It is an art to the approach. You've got to approach the child at their developmental stage. Some of these kids with intellectual disability, though they might be 10 or 15 year old, maybe acting at a five-year-old level. So you need to know the approach is important and leveraging you know, your therapeutic relationship with a child and parents, I think is so important. And particularly around some of the specific sensory triggers, some children with autism will really calm down with being touched on the head. Others will react violently if you touch them on the head. So I think that parental knowledge to know who is this child is invaluable. I was interested that they kind of lumped together what to me were two quite different diagnoses in this study. So they've kind of said autism, ADHD versus all the other mental health problems. Now, obviously, mental health problems can coexist. And I guess perhaps autism and ADHD both you know, are prone to behavioral disturbance. Perhaps that was the rationale. But I wanted to know what your thoughts are around where the overlap is on these conditions and how they're different. Um, working in developmental clinics with kids with autism spectrum disorder, there is correlation with children with autism to have anxiety, particularly when they're transitioning to different periods of school and high school. You know, They are seeing the world a little bit differently, but they've got the same needs as other children. How they sort of fit in with the model can be quite distressing to them and can lead to a lot of psychological burden. So there is a lot of anxiety and depression that is associated with ASD and intellectual disability out there that many clinicians might not appreciate. I just had a question actually for Kerf, because you work both in adults and in pediatric ED. My experience in pediatric specifically is quite minimal, but I've spent a lot of my training in the adult emergency department. And there's been a handful of patients who obviously are adult patients, but they've got these diagnoses from their childhood of autism, some sort of spectrum disorder, ADHD, whatever it may be. First of all, there's an issue, I guess, of transitioning these patients from the pediatric world to the adult world. I think it's really difficult. These patients, I think we kind of lump them in with our psychotic patients, you know, or our demented sort of delirious patients. We give them all 
a standard dose of IM droperidol, 10 milligrams, IM midazolam, 10 milligrams, let them sleep. But of course, with behavioral disturbances from a patient who's got autism or ADHD, as opposed to a delirium or a drug-induced psychosis or something that will eventually resolve itself, these are you know ongoing long-term behavioral struggles. What is your approach to these kinds of patients in the ED? I mean, I've had you know really sad stories of parents who have effectively just left their child, their adult child in the ED because they're just struggling so much. It's a very challenging scenario to manage. Going back to the basic principles of harm to the patient, harm to the people around them, whether it's clinicians or the parents, as they get older, clearly they're physically getting stronger and the harm and risk of harm actually increases. Somehow they all get similar management across the board, whether they're adult or whether they're psychotic or whether it's a serious mental health problem versus whether it's um, ADHD versus ASD. But something that what Carl said resonated in me a lot is actually that quite a lot of them actually reach a certain point where there's no other way to de-escalate them. That's where the management steps will be very similar to how you manage, unfortunately, someone who is behaviorally disturbed in um, psychosis and so on. The challenge as well in the adult-specific EDs or even EDs in general, which are not tertiary pediatric EDs, is the awareness and the amount of resource available to actually try to improve the experience or journey of these patients with ASD and ADHD. Very, very challenging. And sometimes that resource allocation, whether it's space or staff or even education, can be actually conflicting with the other resources that you require for other patients as well. Let's say you want a single room for this patient with ADHD of ASD that will just reduce the amount of simulation and actually let them go in. But then that single room is, demand has gone up for, let's say, someone who's got COVID, something simple, to say someone who's actually coming with the unlikely um, infectious disease that needs isolation. Or let's say you need that for another mental health patient again. So unfortunately, with the competition priorities and resources, they do get left out. And the transition, uh, you see, is also a very challenging part where what we see as also is very heartbreaking is today you're 15 and a half years old in, uh, in six months' time. Suddenly, we have to swing you back down to the adult ED now, right? Mm. And our heart just breaks because we know that the journey will not be as good. We know that they will get much more stimulated. We know that they probably will end up in a waiting room with 20 other people there and some of them probably stimulating them even more than what we would like to. That's the downside of having very rigid systems and having very segregated systems where you need to actually transition from one to another. And there's no real easy way to fix this, I think. Parents see that and also feel powerless and helpless as well. Transition, this is probably out of the scope of the talk in the paper, a massive issue. I think, you know, again, we are only seeing the pointy end of things in the emergency department. I think transitioning to a solid community care with a strong GP and allied health teams and other specialties, psychologists, psychiatrists, when kids transition from 16 to adult years is like super, super important. If you've got strong primary care, you can probably prevent a lot of these things from coming into the door acutely behaviorally disturbed. I certainly had a real vivid experience of that when I was at the children's hospital and we had a frequent flyer child who was extremely traumatized and would come in every single week with a behavioral disturbance complaint or an you know altercation with a carer complaint or something along those lines. They were treated with a lot of sensitivity despite being a frequent flyer. Now, were they going to be treated that way when they turned 16? I don't know. And the thing that kept ringing in my ears is this is a child 
ultimately. But at the same time, I was just reflecting as you were talking on my own cognitive bias, because ultimately, for me, that means that it's sadder that a person with autism gets physically restrained because of behavioral disturbance than someone with psychosis or someone with, you know, even drug intoxication. But do they have any more control over the situation? Probably not due to the vagaries of New South Wales Health, had only one session in terms of the ED violence prevention a couple of years ago. So um, I don't know how helpful it was being an isolated session. But the thing that stands in my mind was the experience of actually having a, a takedown done to myself. We each experienced it because we were each practicing how to do a takedown. And until that point, I never really fully appreciated just how disempowering it is. And so I kind of purely f- for that, I encourage every single clinician to undertake that program because until you have five people pinning you to the ground completely against your will even in a controlled environment I don't think you understand just how little control you have in that situation and I think that you need to experience that before you put another person into that situation regardless of whether they have a developmental issue or a psychiatric issue or even a substance issue I think you need to understand the gravity of what you're doing to that person yeah, in general, it's it's very, very rare. Personally, I haven't been involved in an actual takedown of a pediatric patient yet. Saying that recently, I did have one that actually had to come in via police and the ambulances because they had to be mechanically restrained to a stretcher. Again, very, very uncommon. The challenge as well is having that balance, isn't it? How to actually make sure everyone's safe, including the child, while also making sure that no one's actually disempowering someone unnecessarily, like even with a section of schedule, making them involuntary to actually going all the way with taking them down and restraining them on the floor and giving them an intramuscular injection. For kids in general, culture that I work in, we try to not manhandle a child at all if possible. It is close to almost never that we have to actually do that to make sure that they're safe. An example will also be the absconding child as well. If they actually are not in immediate danger, we unfortunately will not actually hold them down if they're not scheduled a section or a voluntary, meaning not a risk to themselves or others. We actually just let them go and just get the police to actually take them back later in appropriate fashion. Because otherwise, one, you talk about the secondary trauma, two, you're actually going to potentially cause more injuries to patient or even your staff as well. But very challenging. Is autism a mental health problem? I guess it was classified this way in this paper. I've always considered autism a developmental issue. I think it's better to frame it as a developmental problem. I think it's just, if you understand from a developmental point of view, your perspective will change completely. These kids, because of their developmental challenges, will present with mental health symptoms, uh, essentially. Shrez, do you have any take-on points for us? Ultimately, this puts numbers to just something that we already know, which is that patients with autism and patients with ADHD are both at structural risk of suffering secondary trauma in emergency departments because of the environment. So I guess that would be take-home number one. Take-home number two would be, I think, when assessing these patients to have someone senior and experienced to come and see this person early to try and expedite their journey through the ED. And I guess take-home number three needs to be that there needs to be some systemic um, change when it comes to this in terms of the design of our emergency departments. And that's something that needs to be looked at a higher level. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain seated. It's time for Kit's Corner. There's a few things I love about pediatric hospitals. 
the clown doctors, the colors on the walls, i.e. not a dirty surgical aquamarine look. And sometimes even the food seems better than the adult equivalent. Now, who hasn't seen a child eating an activated charcoal ice cream or a biscuit covered in hundreds and thousands and thought, maybe I can just take just one? I admit I've got a sweet tooth. And that, along with the Canadian resource paper that we heard today, inspired me to talk about the great Canadian maple syrup heist. Who would have thought that deep underground in Quebec, there's a strategic maple syrup reserve? Now, it seems like a stereotype, but did you know that 70 to 80% of the world's maple syrup supply is here? Well, it was until in 2011 to 2012, 12.5% of the reserve was stolen. It was slowly siphoned and replaced with water so that no one would notice. And then it was trucked around at night and sold in the US mostly on the black market. Nearly 19 million Canadian dollars of maple syrup were taken in the cover of darkness. And this was until the perpetrators got greedier and lazier and stopped filling the empty barrels with water. It was only during an inspection when the barrels nearly fell over that the con was finally realized. And this has become the most valuable heist in Canadian history. Isn't it just the most quintessentially Canadian thing ever? The great maple syrup heist. I feel so much wiser now. (laughs) What a wonderful little fun fact. Yulis, Maurice and Shres, thank you so much for your presentations today. Carl and Kirk, it was great having you. Thank you so much again for your insight and expertise. If you have any questions or feedback, please contact us at westmintedjournalclub at gmail.com. If you missed out on last month's episode on cardiology, make sure you've had a listen. We talked about risk stratification tools such as the heart score and EDAX, as well as artificial intelligence. We'll join you again next month to talk about neurology. Thanks again. I'm sorry.